Whoa. Alright. That's sick. <laughs> yeah, that is fun. Uh, well, <laughs> who am I talking to? Uh, my name is Sung. And what else do you need to know about a person? <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess that's a good start. I guess we you could say you wrote a book. <laughs> oh, right. I... <laughs> Yeah, I wrote a book, um, and it's called What About the Rest of Your Life? <laughs> yeah, and I hear you're working on some more. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm in, I'm in grad school doing an MFA like an idiot, so I, that's pretty much all I'm here to do, um, officially. <laughs> also, sorry if you hear my beautiful, clumsy dog uh, scampering around. <laughs> I kind of, I always say this, I kind of like the ambiance of whether it's crickets or, like, pets or whatever, it's fun. Yeah, um, I don't know, I, I'm curious what, uh, what's your, what, what's your area look like right now? Well, I live in Los Angeles, and I live near one of the current fires, so, um, it's oh, not looking good. Amazing, what a <laughs> beautiful metaphor. <laughs> it's literally on fire where I am right now. Yeah, uh, like out right outside, like your yeah. building. Shit. Well, not. I mean, I can't see the flames, but I can see a plume of smoke rising off of a mountain. Well, that's good. <laughs> I will say this isn't the worst. The absolute one of the worst situations I've been in was I was working at a job, and I was I was at the workplace, and there was a fire nearby and I could literally see the flames on the mountainside from, from like my desk and every like 20 minutes, the whole building would, would shake like it's a, like an earthquake because the tanker planes that were dropping water were strafing the building to drop water on the fire. Oh my fucking God. <laughs> and they wouldn't let us go home. Oh my fucking God. See, I mean, that's what I mean. It's like, what a perfect <laughs> capitalism in a nutshell. We love it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, how, how, uh, are things going in your like, um, graduate program with the uh, COVID and everything? Uh, I, I am truly ignorant uh, to all of it because <laughs> I'm, I'm in the process of like pursuing medical leave, except it's not going to be that. Um, I'm, I'm a very, I'm a sick man and <laughs> I'm just, I'm seeking accommodations for like my disability and where I'm at with that and not going good. And everyone's kind of in a panic and just every time I open my fucking email, it's like, everyone is like, oh God, I, <laughs> I got an email through the listserv of our English department um, just yesterday. And it was like, if every, if you're feeling frustrated or confused or whatever um in teaching this coming fall um just reach for your joy bubble and i'm like who are you <laughs> like what joy bubble well i don't even know what that means i don't either i don't think this person knows either it feels very like people are just you know um like, half of it is, I, I feel very much like Viking on a burning ship at this point. Like, I don't care. I'm this close to hitting up the listserv every day with an email that has the subject line, um, I will suicide bomb your campus. <laughs> um, uh, and the other half seems to be very, like, we're going to chug along. We're just going to keep chugging along. Um, and it just feels absurd. But, you know, that's that's what it is. Um, I, I'm enraged 
all the time, and it's fine. <laughs> yeah, I think that's something you've written about uh, specifically and also generally in terms of well, what is that one poem I want to drop out in Suicide Bomb a Federal Building is the title. Oh, yeah, whatever shit I'm always talking yeah. about. <laughs> it, seems to, it seems to be a theme. Yeah, you know, I just want, I want to be the next 9-11. That's my career goal. Well, I mean, it's hard not to feel that way with, uh, yeah, everything that's going on. I mean, I, it's hard for me to say, like, pretend that I don't feel that way a lot of the time with, you know, when I was trapped in my workspace and planes dropping water on a fire were buzzing it, like, strafing it. Yeah, I certainly felt that, yeah. I mean, I don't think suicide bombing is... <laughs> I mean, I, I don't see it as, like, despair. I, if anything, I'm like, yeah, set it on fire, please. I'm so excited for the end of all this. Um, all this being, you know, the capitalist mode of things um, that we're just stuck in right now. I think people are um, really itching for, like, a way out and for something to just divert you know um also i'm just right off the bat i'm sorry if i'm not very articulate today my brain is on fire and that's fine and thank you for having me <laughs> no it's okay i probably should have taken a nap my cat woke me up early this morning and i just never took a nap uh, but yeah that's would, an adult I'd... essential you got a nap <laughs> It really is, but I just wanted to say I was asking you about that too because I you've I was reading your Patreon and you you've been talking about both you know grad school and uh, the coronavirus and everything. So I felt like <laughs> I felt like I should ask. Yeah, um, I think that I mean it's just absurd to me that I'm even in grad school because I'm so like anti academia um, at this point. Um, I can very much tell that nobody wants this. Nobody wants me here. <laughs> but, you know, um, like the way I look at being in an academic setting right now, um, I feel like my only responsibility as an academic, if you will, is to just entice my colleagues to divest from our class interests and like this notion of like oh i'll finish my degree and then one day maybe i will this this and this and become like entrenched in the professional like publishing world or whatever the fuck um get a tenure track job um so i'm it's just it's a confusing space to navigate like ideologically but it it basically amounts to <laughs> me just feeling really you know like a troll um and I don't know. Uh, it's it's very strange to wake up every day and know that like that's my job is be in grad school. I don't really. I mean, do you have like a academic background? I don't know who I'm talking to. I'm curious. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I went to undergrad and uh, decided I'd had enough. Uh, so <laughs> yeah, uh, and the thing Smart. is too, I did like. I've been on Twitter and stuff too long, so I've just seen way too many people with bad experiences and MFAs and PhDs and stuff. I just, and especially because I'm very interested in like Marxism and stuff like that, I just know that graduate school is not going to work out for me. Yeah, I mean, grad school, at least the kind of grad school, like, you know, like a GTA ship that I'm doing where I don't 
pay tuition. It's basically just, it's like working at McDonald's, except with bragging rights, and I think that's fucking bogus and silly. <laughs> it does seem like there is that mentality, even when sometimes when, like, for instance, grad students organize to get some kind of collective demand, sometimes it's sometimes it happens in the language of like you know we deserve better compared to like you're saying mcdonald's workers right um well i think something to keep in mind is like we are low-wage workers like pretty much none of us working purely for our stipend is making above 15k a year um everybody's on food stamps pretty much and i mean like there's something status-wise that people seem to think we have where it's like oh like the the thing that drives me craziest is these do-gooder liberal ass writers who come in and they're like my job is to enlighten the people whether it's a poet or someone like in the gender and race studies department or whatever and i'm like you're not that's not what you're doing. You're talking to each other. It's a big circle jerk, and that's fine, but you should be, you know, um, aware of who you reaches and adjust your message accordingly, you know? Yeah, it does seem like uh, a lot of... A lot of the times, uh, people don't really seem... Especially poets don't seem to have a good conception of who their audience is, and I don't know. The, the reach of poetry is very limited. Yeah, uh, I mean, you know, I'm not, I'm not of the school of thought that like only poets read poetry or nothing like that. It's just that ultimately, if especially in an MFA program or whatever have you, your reach is toward a certain type of reader. It's not populist reading, and like most of the time you're either preaching to the choir or you're reaching people who read magazines like, you know, Entropy or whatever. And a majority of writers in quote, the scene are ultimately good hearted people with good intentions who are still kind of lost in like the liberal soup of they're like justice for Breonna Taylor but they don't really know what that means, and they haven't really deconstructed what justice means, right? So for them, it, it's like abolishing police looks like arresting and trying the police. Um, and I think that's where we need to really unpack, like, what is audience? Um, I'm not really interested in, like, the craft perspective of, like, who is your audience and specificity makes blah, blah, blah. Um, like the universal happens in the small <laughs> more than that. I'm like with, as with anything, what is your relationship to power? Um, where are you speaking from and where is your reach and how does that equate to the economic? Um, so I don't know. That's kind of where I'm at. Uh, sorry to be rambling. I don't know what the fuck I'm saying. No, it's okay. No, I, feel, I definitely agree with that, yeah. Like, for me, it's not... Like, for me, I don't think of audience in terms of, um, like, I guess how you're talking, like, the craft perspective, but more the relations of publishing and how that all works and who's physically buying these books and where you can buy them and that kind of thing. And, yeah, I don't know. It, it seems like at times there's, like you're saying, a contradiction between what people... I think say they want and how they operate in the publishing world and all that. 
whether like for instance with abolish the police like how are you going to abolish the police if there's copyright <laughs> oh that's my favorite <laughs> um you actually did ask earlier about my letters to the publisher like in the book and that's kind of interesting to me because my relationship with my publisher is kind of hitched on that a little bit like i wouldn't say we're buds you know and a big part of that is because politically speaking we're so disparate um even if like for example there is the common ground of like i would say my publisher is a person that doesn't like seeing people being shot by the cops on the reg but for example one of our i actually got in trouble because i leaked my book um like it was after it was published but i had a couple people like email me asking if they could read it for free because they either like lived super far away and couldn't manage like the shipping or what have you and they were like poor people who emailed me and were literally saying i don't even know where my rent and food money are coming from but somebody for some reason told me that i should read your book and i'm like in dire straits spiritually and i'm just wondering do you have like a you know damaged copy around that you could send me or something and i just i don't i don't know how to respond to that except to just go okay well i have a pdf of the whole book i don't i also can't afford postage to like spain or whatever the fuck um so i'm just gonna email it back to you uh and he found out about that and there was kind of a dispute um <laughs> but it's like for me that's what that looks like is someone is telling me um i am in pain i am suffering and for some reason i have a hunch that your work might help me get through it um and i what kind of person looks at that and is like thinking about well how many copies have i sold so far um so i just sent it and then i like was like uh went on Facebook, which I no longer use, uh, and was like, you know, um, I blocked, like, everybody off uh, from the press and was like, you know, if, if you know somebody that wants this book, like, just hit me up and I'll email them, whatever. And he found out and was furious. Um, but one thing I will say is, like, he's not, like, a monster. It's just that for him, this type of, quote, activism, if you want to even call it that, goodwill, let's say, is charging everyone $10 for my book. Um, when many people are saying, like, for a book of this, you know, amount of pages and quality of work and blah, 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 it's not, like, a stapled together, you know, chapbook, I would easily pay $15, $18. Um, and for him, that's somehow, like, contributing to this redistribution of wealth that, like, on some level he wants to work toward. And I'm looking at it like, who are buying books? Most of the people that are buying my book at the, these fucking Powell's and shit in the Pacific Northwest or whatever are people that can afford to eat, people that can afford... If you have a budget for book buying, you don't need that book to be $10, you know? Giving, giving the petty bourgeois a discount <laughs> isn't, to me, like, helping people that are starved for, like, spiritual um, fulfillment and connection um so that's that's that kind of disagreement that i see a lot 
where people are on the right track in terms of where their heart's at. It's just they they don't they haven't done the work of like thinking about well where where is the money actually coming from and going and how does that work? Yeah, for sure. And I was gonna something my wife and I were talking about last night was um like with self help books. There's like we were talking about like the comparison between self help books and like academic books and like the idea that like with a lot of self-help books they want to like they're they're advertised and their goal is like in writing them was like this is going to completely change your life and like i think a lot of academic books have like a much more sort of i guess modest goal (laughs) compared to that where they're making very uh you know calculated uh, interventions in whatever field they're working in as they might say like for you like what kind of and I'm asking this because, like, I feel like what you're saying about people reaching out to you, like, feeling like the book really would help them. Like, what was, like, were you thinking that way when you wrote the book? I mean, it doesn't seem that way to me, but I'm wondering what you, what you wrote, like, what you were thinking going into it. Um, no, I, I didn't set out to, like, write a book that would help people. You know, I'm I'm no fucking altruist, like after all like i'm a navel gazing fucking personal essayist like the rest of them but what what it looked like from my end uh writing it was i had known for a long time that the people who had read parts of the book as it was being written um published on different platforms the the general feedback i was getting was i feel connection um and I do think intent is important, uh, at least in how I approach the work. Is um, I'm I don't I'm not a big believer in like art for art's sake at all. I think that's a kind of toxic thing to hold as a virtue. Um, I think that like what's the point? I could just have a diary um, <laughs> if I'm not thinking about what my work can contribute to the world around me. Um, and I'm just doing it and I'm trying to make it good. And then I still feel like I should share it. Then, you know, isn't that just ego? Um, so what I'm doing when I sit down and and writing something is I know that there's someone that understands how this feels and I want to be that person who understands how you feel, you know, and it's a very small act of service. It's barely anything at all, but I know what it feels like to read a work and feel like seen by it and comforted by it and empowered by it. Um, and I guess as the years have gone on too, um, beyond the book that I've written is this notion of like, okay, so going beyond like, um, I'm writing to comfort the lonely, which who, who that's been me. Um, what does it mean to then take that and mobilize it? I, I want to write, you know, something that makes people feel empowered. Um, not in the, you know, hashtag girl boss bullshit way, but I want I want people to know when these inevitable things happen, when these things that are our familiar yokes begin to crumble off us, we're gonna be okay and we're gonna we know how to be there for each other. Um, I, I, I think despair is something that really haunts us as oppressed people. And I want to write work where, you know, like the suicide bombing shit, it's a gag. But also I want, I know that where I'm, when I'm at my worst, the thing that really is such an elixir for me is 
knowing that with everything I've been through personally, the notion of a violent insurrection isn't scary. It's a beautiful, hopeful thing. Um, so that's what I mean when I say I want to be a propagandist. Um, and I think a lot of times people who've been through uh, traumatic things, like the people who have reached out to me about my, my book and said, you know, I've been through this too and blah, blah, blah. Where I feel my book fails because I was a new writer is I didn't do enough to diagnose the problem. I did enough to connect and say, you're not alone. But now what I'm working toward is it goes beyond our individual experiences of violence. It, it, there is a reason that these violent things keep happening. Um, and in that shared experience, we can diagnose the problem, and it is a classed one, it is a racialized one, um, and hopefully bring people into the fold of realizing there is an, a, there's a certain collective power that we can all access together should we go down that route and, and read through it, write through it. Yeah, and this is something that I feel like comes up in online discussions from time to time especially because like well maybe jordan peterson has passed his prime now but um <laughs> um you know like the just like the idea that there aren't like the, what's like the leftist equivalent of like self-help or whatever and it does seem like for our, like that's a market that's really dominated by uh a lot of reactionary sentiment and i don't know to see like, because obviously, like, the idea of a leftist self-help seems kind of contradictory on its face, but there is a need for something like that, and it seems like you're kind of writing in that vein. I guess so. Um, I mean, I think that too much of, and, and leftist is such a vague, broad term, yeah. but I'm, you know, I'm looking at it in terms of anyone who identifies as a leftist is, is like, someone that's, like, woken up beyond the Kamala is queen, you know, territory. And I was like, oh, okay, we, we should have not have prisons, but also, and, and in that, that broad also, I see a lot of this kind of infighting and, and um, weaponization of identity politics. A lot of self-absorbed politics is what I see in practice today of, you know, I am such and such identity, and therefore, I get to shout you down. I get to allow my traumas to run rampant, unchecked in how I interact with you. You're an oppressor, you're an oppressor, without looking at it in terms of, that's a false binary, the oppressor-oppressed, you know? Um, it, we have to find the common thread of, like, how, how, do, how do we take these disparate groups of people and... and realize a common goal, you know? Um, so I, I think I really don't like those isms. I really don't like, I don't call myself a feminist. I don't, I don't do none of that shit. Uh, I think that it's what I've begun to do is investigate what it is that, that poses that problem. Every time we go down this road of trying to figure out left unity or whatever the fuck, what I see is inherently a logical framework of supremacy, where it's always, you know, um, that predator-prey dynamic is so alive and well and goes uh, uninterrogated as long as whoever is being cast as predator versus prey feels appropriate to the moment. 
I think that in itself is something that needs to be broken down. And you're talking about that in regard to, like, leftist spaces. Yeah. Um, And, you know, again, like, leftist is such a meaningless word at this point i don't know that it really i'm not i'm not a smart cookie i don't know shit about the history of these terms really but what i do see is that leftist is now a catch-all for people who have general concerns toward the well-being of um certain people right and i think we just we need to start thinking beyond like the fascism of the moment, which, yes, that is a material concern and it should always be the focus. But as you're doing that work of eradicating that mode of thinking um, specific to, like, specific positions of the world today, I think we also need to be doing the work simultaneously of that internal struggle of what does supremacy look like on the individual level? How does that logic function? You know, it's not just racism, it's not just misogyny. There is some, there is a pure logic system going on that we have just accepted. And I think that's the problem we see when, like, it comes to infighting with, like, anarchists versus so-called tankies and all this shit and authoritarianism is there, there needs to be a conscious banishment of supremacist logic logic not ideology but logic you know yeah and that's something you talked about in your patreon post about like coronavirus too and the i guess the anthropocentrism that kind of dominates that discourse i i can't believe you've read my things i don't know why um (laughs) it's kind of embarrassing to be honest (laughs) i gotta be honest sometimes it feels like i'm a stalker on this podcast because i really do try and read every like everything that someone's written <laughs> and it's kind of like uh-oh it feels kind of weird confronting someone with all the all their work no i appreciate it because i i don't know what the fuck i've been saying <laughs> and like to be honest like who knows you might bring something up and then i revisit it and i'm like oh i'm not that bitch anymore i don't know who that is <laughs> to borrow some titles from your book some chapter <laughs> titles yeah <laughs> I yeah I I wasn't aware that you had read my book, um, especially because I'm not I don't like to flatter myself, so I'm not one of those people that are like oh my book you know I I like I prefer to forget that it exists. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, uh, I'm thank you again for having me. I'm. <laughs> oh yeah, no worries. But maybe we should go back to the the logics and the. Uh... The anthropocentrism of coronavirus. What uh, do you want to know? Huh? <laughs> well, I guess I, I guess like well, for me, one thing I was reminded of in what you were talking about was there's there's a, and he said this a couple of times in a couple of different contexts and places, but he argues it in that in a in a book as well. One of his more recent ones, the the Frederick Jameson book, where he um, or essay, I think it's a long essay, but because it's Frederick Jameson an essay for him stretches into a book because he just can't stop going on digressions like this one I'm doing right now. But um, he, he basically in order, like in order to create a, a new, like a universal, he sort of says, okay, well we need to get like, what would it like a way to get an, a universal in America would be if like a leftist president in the United States just conscripted everyone in, in the country. And the goal of this wouldn't be to make everyone join the army, but to get everyone universal health care, And like, 
I understand the logic of it, but it also shows the logic of that kind of universalism, which is that it's, which is effectively a conscription and that, you know, that is not necessarily a good thing. I, it, (laughs) that feels, and I don't know shit about shit. I ain't read none of that. I don't know who this person is. And I, I the best, I think. (laughs) (laughs) I'll flat out just say right now that I'm, I'm very much ignorant. I'm not a big reader. Um, so take everything I say with a grain of salt, but I think the issue goes beyond, again, um, telling people what is best and teaching them what is best and what we should be thinking and giving them those things. I think that, like, yeah, universal health care, great. Um, but if we are still in the mode of thinking in hierarchical terms, what good does it do to grant someone freedom what 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 good does freedom do if we are still treating it as a commodity that is given yeah exactly and that's something i talk about like with respect to publishing like you know this goes back to like you know paulo Freire and his sort of idea of like the banking system of like knowledge which like you know we just expect people to read these books and just like absorb them and not have any interaction with the author or something like that's sort of one way communication is like a form of hierarchy like how how are like us how are we going to challenge that hierarchy from within it you know right right and uh, i think we just don't quite know uh in the broad sense we like the universal we we don't the popular mode of thinking is one above the other you know uh, like centered around power as something to distribute rather than abolish i think power in itself should be eradicated um even as a concept um and i i don't know how much sense that makes like (laughs) but i i think that for power to exist there is the absence of power, there is the absence of control, there is always the controlled, the disempowered. It is inherently something built on plunder. Um, And I don't like this notion of even, you know, building power, dual power. I don't really believe in decolonization either. I think that we need to get used to the notion that there is no undo button, There is uh, things are irrevocable. Um, and I'm just, I'm not interested in, like, I'm not, I'm not interested in, in looking to building a just hierarchy. That doesn't make any sense to me, and I think it's, like, oxymoronic to look for that. Leroy, sorry, my dog is under my <laughs> <Sorry>. desk. <laughs> Hi, baby. It was a bit confusing for a second, because Leroy has Roy in it, and I was like, what? um yeah i i i find myself kind of frustrated in that regard uh and and i think that i see a lot of like nerdy fun interesting areas of study going to waste a lot of the time because and i'm still trying to work out like how to articulate this the best way possible but 
when I say logic, I'm talking about, like, for example, the functions of an equation, right? The way that something actually filters through rather than the ideas themselves. And, for example, when I say supremacist logic, it's we haven't thought about what fascism looks like on the abstract plane. What does fascism look like in the heart? And I know that's a real frou-frou fucking question, but I think it is something that's worth being asked, at least on the private individual level, and people don't do it enough. Uh, well, maybe a better way to put it is, um, like, with all, like, it seems like on in the left, there's been a, well, maybe, like, I've seen a lot of people, like, turning to, like, let's say, like, the psychoanalytic type stuff to try and explain what's going on with fascism. Um. And it does seem like, it does seem like there's just, and it seems like that's part of the reason for that, is that there is a sort of lack of explanation beyond the sort of structural ones that we're used to for fascism. Yeah, um, I mean, I think it's worth investigating fascism as though it were a distorted cognition. Um, like, you know, the, there's like the fun CBT shit where, you know, you can look up like a worksheet on what are popular uh, cognitive distortions and how can you challenge them. I think that the political, it, it often happens on the individual level, like on the plane of, you know, it, we're talking about ideology and how it's implemented. And to interrogate that without considering a person's psyche, without considering what constructs that e their ego is is kind of silly. Um, and I'm not into, like, psychoanalysis, like, in the Jungian sense of, like, oh, it, everybody's connected through this metaphysical blah blah blah, I think that's fucking artsy-fartsy bullshit, but I do think there's, like, <laughs> there was a, a popular conversation happening a couple years ago that I wish would come back, um, at least where I was at um, in Chicago, because so many people were just beefing all the time. I think... <laughs> Everybody could really benefit from understanding, like, the various ways that their thinking can fail. The, the ways that we think to protect our ego. Uh, the ways that we uh, think in order to cushion really harsh realities. And how that can aid fascism, um, should it not be interrogated, analyzed, and, you know, disavowed. Um, full disclosure, I, I'm... A fan of Deleuze and Guattari. I'm not well read. Please don't quote things to me thinking I'm going to know what you're saying. Um, but I, I am of the, of the school of thought that these are things that. What I liked about Anti Oedipus was tackling fascism not just as something related to a historical moment but looking at it in terms of, okay, so these people were writing against fascism and resisting it as a mode of thinking after seeing it um, eradicated through a world war and then kind of making a resurgence. It was never fully, you know, abolished, right? And that book, I feel, was written toward diagnosing the problem and then giving people the tool to, of the tools necessary to think their way out of it and break that cycle the the things that you know when political strife comes up fascism is no longer the thing that is the easiest 
uh, like the life raft for so many people. Um, and I think that we're seeing that right now is again, there's so much strife, like literally a deadly pandemic, everyone's fucking unemployed and scared. And in this moment, I think it's important to try and keep a level head about, okay, moment to moment, everyone is dealing with this dread and like fear and, and very much feeling aimless and not getting dragged down in despair. I think, I think the purest thinkers of the world who are idealistic and want to think it doesn't have to be this way all the time, who believe in revolution, are prone to also being so, so, so deeply sensitive <laughs> that they end up, you know, suicidal and fucking just mentally it wreaks havoc on, the, on you to see all the suffering and, and know that you as one person are powerless to it and that's just the state of the world um and i know a lot of people that whose entire being just walking the earth because of and and we tend to be autistics <laughs> i think it says something um that we are neurodivergent in that way um we don't know how else to function but against capitalism at least on the cognitive level, because we've already failed. Like, I am disabled, I've already failed. I'm already, in a way, on some intuitive level, immune to the poison of capitalist ideology because I'm useless. I'm, I'm, I'm a worthless unit to, to the capitalist state. I cannot be exploited to my maximus, maximal potential because I'm just not functional. Um, and with other people that are on this spectrum with me who are very much struggling right now, I'm seeing that time is such a big thing that people are struggling with. Everybody's kind of saying this a lot during this pandemic where we're all stuck inside or we're stuck at work thinking about how we should be inside. <laughs> and everybody's saying, what is time? I, I have no idea what day it is. Um, and I think people that have deconstructed their thinking and their life philosophy around work uh, through a Marxist lens are especially sensitive to that, that disorientation. Um, because once you abolish wage labor, what is time going to be? I mean, time as we know it, this construct right now, the way that it functions and these units of measurement, they they exist solely to implement the wage labor system. So on, I think that in order to abolish wage labor, you have to abolish time. Um, and right now I'm seeing a lot of people scrambling around this as their days are being disrupted by having to switch platforms or being unemployed or what have you. And uh, being forced to confront time as the arbitrary thing it is, that it is not neat units. Um, especially as climate change changes our perception of time passing also. The seasons are all out of whack. Um, it, it really fucks with your sense of worth as a human being not to be able to um, assign units of time for the things that you're doing. Yeah, and this gets back to, like, um, I think I've written about this in a poem, but, like, the idea that sort of, I guess modernity or whatever was brought in with the printing press and Gutenberg and all that but the first sort of machine to spread widely throughout Europe 
um, was and was the clock was like the clock tower, mm-hmm. and that, and that happened you know us like you know maybe was a hundred to one hundred and fifty years before the printing press, and what that really underlines is the way in which time, as you're saying, is sort of one of the central things that um, the society we live in tries to tries to regulate. And you're right, like, and yeah, I mean, everyone's right, like, COVID especially is really breaking down that order. And I think climate change, as you're saying, well, too, because there's like a, there's a hard limit there with, it seems like with what, with like what we have to do before climate change just sort of spirals out of control. And I, I mean, we in like sort of the, the planetary sense, even though most of us are kind of, yeah, no, what are you saying? Oh, no, I was just agreeing through laughter. <laughs> Oh, that's cool. Yeah, no, I just, it's just like, um, we're like, what are people going to like, it's becoming more apparent with COVID, but you know, what are people going to do when that, when that really starts to, to fracture? I, are you familiar with the term saturation point? Uh, no, what do you, what does it mean? Uh, it's, I've been thinking about it a lot and, and I think it probably says a lot that most of my points of reference are from the school of like, psychology right because that's where i kind of live as a disabled ill person um but saturation point is this idea of when you're in an argument with someone there is a point that you reach where things are so saturated in emotion and tension that no productive dialogue is possible any longer and i think that we reach this very quickly um and that's something we need to keep in mind whether it's an argument with a lover or a debate online or what have you or even you know you can apply this concept to the 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 state of things on the uh popular political level you know um we're at a point where we're gonna we're rapidly approaching that point where there is no logical discussion to be had and as things spin out we're gonna have to get used to breaking out of our typical mode of communication and action you know um when suddenly everything is on fire like even more so than right now um (laughs) or you know winter is just wet um we're gonna be very confused and disoriented and it's gonna have to look like letting go of what is familiar and that's very scary um and whereas in the attempt to sort of you know um protect a a interpersonal relationship with someone you love where you go okay we're both in a very heightened emotional state right now we need to take some space and not talk because we're not going to say very good things right now um, I think that's going to look like as things spin more and more violently out of control, out of our control, looking like, okay, I have to stop trying. I have to stop and, and let the violence happen and lean into that and, and not resist. Um, and I think that's really terrifying. Yeah, and I think for a lot of, like, especially like a lot of Americans, just because of the way, like, you know, that the liberal sort of value system works for a lot of people, like, there's there's like a real embrace of nonviolence, and like I've talked about this on a past podcast um, with regard to the work of Ernesto Cardinal, who was involved in the struggle in Nicaragua, 
and he you know he he wrote back to like um um i guess like a pacifist catholic priest in america like you know that's not gonna like non-violence isn't gonna work down here and it i think you know we're reaching a point it seems like where you know that's increasingly becoming the case in america and I, i think it's been the case for a long time but i think it's getting to the point where even liberals are going to be confronted with that. And I like, what are they going to do? Right. And I, uh, you know, this is a good example of, again, that like good old CBT analysis, I think is why is it that the popular mode of thinking is violence equals bad? You know, I, I think it's important to, to think about why, that is, I think it's fucking CIA propaganda is what that is. Um, this notion of violence, death, destruction equals bad. Um, therefore, anything that preserves things outside of that mode of conduct equals good. Um, and that's just flat and makes no sense. It's not, it, it, all it does is serve the egoistic function of self-preservation, of thinking, well, if there's violence going on, I have to confront my mortality. I think there's, I'm seeing a lot of decisions and um, ideologies being formed on not being able to confront your mortality. People are afraid to die. People are afraid of being hurt, rightfully so. But it's to the degree that we've flattened all kinds of violence and we've come to regard all violence as equally threatening when it's like, okay, but what about our positionality what about what is good or bad violence what what is the potential of it um i like it's kind of like <laughs> um i think about you know people that think art inherently equals good it, that's these are very oversimplified notions um and ultimately when you simplify things that way i think it will aid fascist thinking because it is helping you disavow the important work of critical thinking. Once you turn that self, that part of yourself off, you're opening yourself up to indoctrination. Yeah, and I mean, we see that with how easy, like, especially in poetry spaces, how easy it is for, you know, fascist types to, to infiltrate some of these scenes or just, like, you know, publish poems without people being like, oh, I had no idea this person was a fascist. It's like... Well, yeah, because you've completely decided to, like, because you, you've adopted a worldview where, like, that's not, like, a concern that you, you think about, you know? Yeah, I, it's kind of funny how, like, the free speech thing again and again <laughs> becomes a very easy way for uh, people to um, exploit the better natures of people. You know, uh, when you think free speech is a, quote, guaranteed right, which it is not, um, and therefore you're, you're arguing for aesthetics over the ethical imperative, that's a pretty dangerous place to be in. I don't believe in, like, you know, cancellation of this, this, and that. What I think is, okay, so we're seeing fascists make money and you know, uh, form a, get a larger, grow their platform um, because they're good at this thing. The argument isn't, this is a good piece of art. The argument is, well, what is the money, where's the money coming from and going? And that's why, you know, I think the only 
way forward there is to abolish publishing, abolish copyright, and therefore the ability to generate wealth and power through speech at all. Yeah, and so, yeah, I agree. And then there's also, like, I was thinking about this today. I was going to make a post to this effect. But, um, like, when you say that, like, when you say, like, abolish these things, there's also, you know, the fascist reactionary response, which, in my mind today, um, I remembered... Have you seen the movie uh, Snowpiercer? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it reminds, like, a lot of the time, like, when that kind of... When like, someone says, like, for instance, like, abolish the family, like, I imagine just, like that scene in Snowpiercer where the pregnant woman who's the teacher the with the the blonde hair the white the white the white lady just pull like suddenly when she's under threat she just like pulls out a machine gun and starts shooting. and that's like i think a lot of the fascist response to these these kind of arguments because they not necessarily because they because of the threat but because the threat because the because the idea that there is a threat for them is an opportunity to start shooting basically and i think yes. that's kind of what we're yeah what we're get what you're kind of getting at yeah yeah i i think that the reactionary right has the luxury of reserving its arms because it is the predominant way of thinking um there's more that the vast you know, the the larger America with a capital A has in common. Uh, there's more overlap there with reactionary conservatives than they are going to have with, you know, people that are <laughs> calling for violent insurrection on the left. Um, it's this idea of pacifism at all costs, unless... And, and that unless makes it seem like there is restraint, that there is an elegance to it, that there is a, a more carefully considered um, reservation there, when that doesn't mean, you know, um, these people are less violent. It means that they they're, the violence that they are um, proposing is more focused, and it's focused at us. And it's easy to lose track of that. Yeah, exactly. And when that violence happens, you know, their response is, uh, you know, move to the suburbs, for instance. So, you know, one of the things, too, that, like, you've talked, you know, you've talked about um, is, like, the way, especially in the poetry world, a lot of, I, I see it all the time, like, a lot of, like, the way poets talk about, like, intelligence is one, well, one, like, sort of main way they do this is, in propagating sort of, as you're saying, sort of fascist ideas or narratives or whatever, you know, the way, like, a lot of poets use metaphors, like, poets always say they're being careful with language, but, uh, you know, I've said this a million times, but, you know, when you look at what they're actually saying, the way they talk about intelligence and stuff, it's just, you know, it's, as you're saying, it's just clearly, there's a direct line from where they're at to fascism, and it's, you know, goes un, 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 unremarked upon. By, you know uh, could I ask you more about what you mean by intelligence yeah. well so for instance there's one poem that's always stayed with me where a poet um, just sort of like remarked upon like the brain size of a squirrel like oh it's a tragedy this squirrel it has a small brain it'll never know and it's like what what and I read that and I was like <laughs> are you kidding me oh I, uh, bring out the calipers baby I'm so excited <laughs> I know, right? And I'm like, I'm not to 
like this is someone who whose poetry I think is generally regarded as like not as like being progressive or something. And I'm like, no, this person, as you're saying, is literally busting out the calipers. I mean, I think that's the thing that kind of makes me laugh is like again these units of measurement, um, pun intended. It, it, it's anytime there is a measurement, I think it needs to be. Uh, analyzed through an economic lens, what is being measured, why, and for what, to what end. Um, but to to bring that in, um, it, these it's so ubiquitous in a capitalist culture that is hurtling toward uh, more and more oppressive fascism. <laughs> and it's easy for someone, and this is why, like you know, this notion of cancel culture, I I do have many reservations about it. It's very easy for someone who is um, good of heart and has a good intent about them to slip up and do something that is um, just you're dropping that eugenicist stuff, <laughs> you know. Um, and and I think it's also there's something to be said about the fact that it is so predominant and accessible that. When you use language like that, when you use metaphors like that that support eugenics, um, you're going to reach a wider audience most of the time. When you um, write toward the notion of a measurable intellect, you're going to be reaching a wider audience because it's a familiar unit of measurement. Yeah, and I think this is something I think I've said on twitter at one point like there's also a way in which too the measurement itself like especially if we're talking about colonialism or imperialism or whatever like the very act of measuring itself is oftentimes the creation of, of value like that mm -hmm. is the point at which it you know enters the system enters the 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 ledger for for the capitalist and yeah i mean it's you're right like when you start doing that it, it that's how that sort of stuff becomes legible to a wider audience or it enters let's say the the ledger of you know the poetry world yeah and you know i'm 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 deeply invested in semiotics but i would not say that these battles should be fought on the semantic level um ultimately and and that's what i'm saying about you know like i don't think somebody who <laughs> is accidentally supporting eugenics for a day um because <laughs> they weren't careful enough should be automatically shunned as a fascist right i don't believe that's silly to me and it's a bit extreme and again when we're talking about extremes we should calm down and and think about it reasonably you know and and go back to these tools of like okay am i is this an appropriate reaction is this a bit black and white how i'm thinking um i think that's it's really important for us to like not over inflate um our ability to to assess something um and give it value uh, again that ironic thing of like you know measurement in itself is is that not an act of violence um i think we have a tendency to do that just on that pure level um that mathematical level that logical level um and like i'm 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 thinking about how 
closely related all these things are. Um, like, for example, uh, when we're talking about measurement, my, my good friend Jane today, like just today, we had a conversation about them. Um, now that they're going to be teaching online, um, completely online, they're, they were talking about how it felt kind of hollow, right? Where previously they would lead class discussions by having like group uh, mindfulness exercises and trying to develop critical thinking and like learning how to control ourselves emotionally and, and things like that. Very um, spiritually empowering exercises with their students and now they can't have that. And they were like, it feels kind of hollow. And I, I think that again is, we're, t we're talking about filling time, measuring time as it's breaking down around us. So it's inevitably going to have us measuring ourselves and thinking about our worth as educators or poets or what, whatever the fuck have you in terms of what amount of something we can generate, how much time we can fill out. Um, whereas I was like, okay, but is there not value in simply modeling in a time like this? You know, um, you look outside and, and, People are dying, literally dying in droves of a deadly virus. And for an educator to go, okay, my job is to spend time literally doing such and such. It's just about spending time. But I'm telling you that you should take your time and do what you need to do to be okay. And I understand that as more important. And I think that kind of modeling serves critical thinking skills and empathy building much better than trying to build a curriculum to squash into a, a new format of time measurement. It's the, like one thing too, that, that, it, that really occurs to me lately is I think there are a lot of people who are coming to, you know, a more radical type of consciousness with all the stuff that's going on. And like a lot of the stuff that like, you know, I've had the benefit of, you know, reading abolitionist type texts and stuff for, you know, several years and having the opportunity to think about them for a long time. And like, it just seems like right now there's just such a, on the one hand, you're like, there's, it feels like it can often feel like there's nothing but time, but often, but also at other times it feels like there's a real pressure to understand this stuff like immediately. And, you know, from my experience, it's, it's, it's really hard to, to put that on people right now yeah i that is that i get stuck on that paradox quite often um there are two things that i'm always thinking about is my father once said to me um this was right after i had left the mental hospital like the first time i think and there was like a fifteen thousand dollar bill or something and and he you know i i <laughs> I think when you're already a suicidal person and then you and part of that suicidality is coming from a place of understanding your lack of value as as in terms of the economic because you're disabled because you're sick and unable to function being confronted so powerfully with what it looks like to be sick and to this notion that you are a leech on society, on your family unit, on your friends. I, you know, that's not great. That's going to make you way more um, suicidal. And my father said, uh, you're, you can always make more money, 
which sounds like such a, a silly, like kind of a bourgeois thing to say almost, but really what it is is you're always going to have to, you're always going to have to toil. You're always going to be in debt. There is a hopelessness to that. So in that hopelessness is infinite hope also. And similarly, it's like we have nothing but time. I have nothing to lose but time. Um, and and in that, there is this radical hope of, well, then, is there such a thing as wasting time then? When my only option is to spend it? Yeah, and that, like, I guess is the the kind of system where, you know, that we end up, that I feel like we're we're caught in where these two things, like, happen simultaneously just constantly and that and the way that that in and of that in and of itself is really a disorienting type of thing um and you know i just want to say too that you i I forget which (laughs) yet again i forget which patreon post it was in but you you talk about in one of them how you know that uh capital like how capitalism is always valuing you know disabled folks as having as like being worthless or less than worthless or is measuring just how worthless someone is, you know. I just wanted to point that out too to, for for people listening. Yeah, I I mean I I think about that all the time. Um, I think about my worthlessness and the way that it does inoculate that ideological poison of if I already have to accept that I'm worthless and I'm going to try to survive, then. I have to deconstruct the notion of what worth is and what is worth saving. Um, and I, I, there's something really beautiful about knowing that you will never be useful to capitalism. You will never be a, a good foot soldier for the capitalist nation state. They don't want you. And therefore, you fly under the radar a little bit. <laughs> I um I think that that's something that disabled people really need to hear more is it, I would benefit from hearing this more um this thing of oh you're absolutely fucking behind you are absolutely not on par on this level there are things that I cannot do and because of that I'm not a desirable target I'm not a desirable target for uh, becoming, you know, indoctrinated into capitalist ideology and and being used for those ends. Um, it, it, it's it's kind of nice to be the odd duck in that regard, you know. Um, it, it's freeing. It's freeing. Yeah, I think too. I was I've been reading. Um, what's it called? Decarcerating. Uh, disability i think in a in a reading group by um the death panel podcast one of the things the author points out like with disability is on the one hand and this goes back to what you're saying like about sort of how you know these two contradictory things exist at the same time on the one hand like there's the the way capitalism operates to make you know disabled people feel worthless and you know on all and as you as you were saying but on the other hand too there's just a constant you know, urge to try and profit off of, you know, the services or try and, you know, 
you know, like if there's like any kind of public money involved, you know, try and privatize that money to, to, to make, to, you know, make profit. And so it's this weird, it's this, you know, classic thing that capitalism does where it's like, on the one hand, it's, you know, telling someone they're worthless at the same time, trying to wring all the money possible from, you know, whether it's the public, you know, sort of the public governments and public assistance or, you know, disabled people themselves through, you know, insurance or whatever. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, it's like, I want capitalism to call me worthless. If we can accept the notion that, that just flat out capitalism is evil, it's, it feels like I, to be alive and to survive as a disabled person who is therefore unable to um, generate uh, ex- um, excess wealth for the ruling class, there, there's something to that where you are passively resisting. Even in your most passive state, in that passivity you are resisting. Um, and I, I look to metaphor a lot for comfort and to make sense of the world. Uh, and this is something I unfortunately have to think about all the time, especially right now. It's very saturated for me because I'm re-entering the workforce basically after a few months off and I'm like $15,000 in debt again after a recent hospitalization um, and seeking accommodation and hitting walls. And I'm thinking about how much labor on the part of my individual friends, loved ones, my community, to keep me alive. And it's been really difficult not to succumb to that notion of like capitalist worth being the end all, where to hear I am worthless as a worker and not think good, fucking good. Um, It's easy to, you know, the, the... the metaphors I've been so drawn to for so long and still struggle to sort of distance myself from, it's like being a leech, being a drain on society, you know, and and all of this, again, is so open for indoctrination. Um, I'm a welfare queen. I'm a this and that. I'm useless, you know. Um, But I've been thinking about what is it about my life that is so worth preserving to the people that love me? And I think we need to think about pleasure more. We need to think about luxury more. And just beyond, you know, poor people deserve luxury products too, but, you know, uh, which that's arguable. Um, But I've, I've been thinking about it in terms of how much work does it take to help a very exotic, rare orchid blossom, you know, setting up a fucking greenhouse um, thousands of miles away from its, native environment and and i'm thinking about people who do this not for a living but as a hobby because they're afforded that that time that energy simply because they want to see that orchid blossom that in itself gives them something spiritual fulfillment and joy Um, and i think it's that is something you can't quantify and a lot of us disabled people forget that part when we're talking about our worth. Yeah, and I get what you're saying about like you can't quantify it. Like just maybe the <laughs> the types of the stuff we've been talking about together. Like the very notion of like value and worth here is is the is the problem, right? Exactly. Yeah, and I 
and I feel like, you know, one of the, like, especially like conversations around disability, like really is one way to like make that apparent in a way that, you know, maybe if you're just focusing on the kind of, you know, struggle between, you know, the, the workers and, uh, the bosses sometimes that can that can be that can be missed though it, it's it's hard no it's it's still hard to do that there yeah yeah um i think it's also something we should keep in mind is that the things the ideas and modes of thinking that liberate or empower the most vulnerable it trickles up things trickle up not trickle down so when I happen upon a type of thought that helps me feel like as the worthless lump that I am, um, feel like I not simply deserve space in the world, but it is an ethical imperative that I occupy what space I do, that goes, that can only go up to the people that are more capable of fulfilling these roles. Um, or if I can justify my existence, it's not at all hard <laughs> for someone that is not neurodivergent, for someone that does not become incapacitated for months and months to then go, wait, hold on, I'm more than just uh, m- my my punch card, you know. Yeah, for sure. And like what you're talking about, like it trickling up, you can see that like in the form of like workplace metrics and how surveilled and like however like you know i've worked at several jobs where you know like it didn't really matter what i did so much as like what i produced right like they i I was just surveilled constantly my production was surveilled constantly and it was just a matter of meeting those goals or not meeting those goals and you know that was my that was my my worth there and yeah you're right that's like something that trickled up and i think interestingly too like a lot of that stuff for instance like like that kind of workplace metrics idea, some of that stuff, you know, was brought in by like progressive reformers or in the poetry sort of scene. You can see that sort of in sort of trickle up, as you say, through like the nonprofit industrial complex where, you know, these these foundations demand measurable returns and, you know, de- de- demand measurable results. And, you know, with a lot of presses becoming nonprofits, they're being, they're feeling that logic enter into those spheres, I think. Yeah, that that um it it's a little concerning. It's a little worrisome um to watch the way people are reinventing presses and publishing. I'm just kind of keeping a careful eye on it from the outside knowing that is not something I'm interested in. <laughs> but I, I I am interested in the way it's going to continue shaping the discussion around labor and art, right? Yeah, for sure. Like, um, like for me, the goal is is abol- abolition of it, you know. Mm-hmm. And you know, you can make an art like as I was sort of suggesting, you can make an argument from that, from like you know the work of abolitionists, prison abolitionists, and their work in the nonprofit industrial complex to publishing. You can make those connections and see why, you know, public as we've talked about why publishing is clearly part of the problem when it comes to you know the 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 way the you know the way the society operates and you know publishing has a has a key role in that 
Yeah, um, and I think about it in terms of social capital, this, like, loose idea, too, um, especially when, for example, <laughs> right now this uh, disastrous stuff happening with Angela Davis. Uh, <laughs> people are real, like, mad on every which in every which way about the shit she's saying um like coming out and sort of like wishy-washy endorsing uh harris and biden and like electoral politics and stuff and i just am like why are we so fiercely guarding this woman as a symbol that i think is something we should think about in terms of publishing too uh, what does it do to a person to be um uh, you know, to be an academic is basically to be in publishing for many, many years, right? And and I think it, it it's publishing ultimately is something that runs on and supports the the structure of like a cult of personality, and that is something I see with Angela Davis, and it is so remarkable to see a woman. Spe like specifically from like the civil war or i mean a uh, civil rights struggle and like it's such a historical thing that we are just linked to in real time she's still alive um but to watch how fiercely people are looking to her as like a bastion of hope when uh she is a fallible human woman whose ideologies have evolved and never been perfect you know, um, it, I I think that's dehumanizing to look at her as though she's this infallible um, symbol of some sort of, of liberation. Um, and it, it, this thing of you don't sell your art, you sell yourself in a big way. Um, like, I don't I don't have a very big following, but I also know that. I've had a lot of people be creepy to me knowing that I'm an author and in many ways I have to perform a sort of personality of being fine with it in order to sell my books and make that small amount of passive income. Um, and I think that is also a problem. So when we're talking about things like cancel culture or whatever too, uh, you're talking about the toppling of a cult of personality and why it's necessary and and the fact that it, it's only necessary because this, whoever it might be, uh, built that empire on abusing others and um, there is money being made and actual blood on their hands, you know? And I think that's, it's it's just like every time... A, a new person gets like called out for doing something, whether it's like they said something stupid or, you know, they're literally like a wife beater. Um, there's a moment where you have to kind of stop and be like, okay, well, what do you fucking want? Do you want to deplatform this person or do you want to work toward a future where there is no platform? Yeah. And that remind what you're saying reminds me of something from Occupy Boston where, like Noam Chomsky was speaking and some guy just like asked him like do you like will you will you lead us to will you lead us to the revolution right here right now and it's like that's not really like Noam Chomsky is an anarchist that's not really how that that works <laughs> and it's like <laughs> and also is... he's not like Noam Chomsky is a public figure like he's he's an anarchist but he's not like 
setting cop cars on fire. <laughs> like, I mean, that we know of. Um, uh, yeah, not that we know of. And it's like, if, if he's doing that in his private time, leave him alone on signal. Don't fuck like, Stop asking anarchists to lead. <laughs> yeah, that's not the point. <laughs> I mean, it really just shows what you're talking about. Like, the way in which the, the relations of the way in which the relations of publishing, you know, are, are contradictory to a lot of the things we're talking about and what that, and what that kind of like, what kind of relations that leads people to have with, with writers that really m- end up missing the point of what <laughs> the writing's all about. And I don't mean that to like make fun of the people who that happens to, but it's, but what, I've, what I think what we're both saying is that, you know, that, that is the function of, of publishing in this, in this world. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and like even the irony of me doing this podcast right now, I I have to think about like why the fuck am I the one who who wants to talk to me? Why and yeah, like me doing the podcast? <laughs> like what what qualifications do I have to do any of this? Like I've done I've none. I don't even like we, I, we're just two people fucking around, you know. <laughs> yeah. No. If if you're listening to this, I will help you set up a podcast. You know, it's not that it's really not that hard. You get a yeah. You just, you just get a Discord server and you invite Bot Craig and then tell Bot Craig to start recording and Bot Craig just goes now recording and then yeah you start talking. <laughs> I mean, well, that's also like a I, I'm I'm a real half-assed uh, quote content creator, you know, where it's like I have a Patreon, I have you know, and once in a while someone I don't really submit shit anymore because I just don't care. Um, but like sometimes someone I know might solicit my work and then I'm like all right here you go do you like it cool um I just and most of the time like everything that goes on my patreon has already been released publicly elsewhere and it's kind of like do you want to give me money that's on you I can't tell you what to do uh it sure would be nice I lost my food stamps thank you so much you know that that's kind of how I operate and it's a very half-assed way of doing it but it's hard for me to get invested in building this, like, this, I don't know, platform for myself and to put work into it that feels contradictory to what I what I think should be done with media. Um, so it's just kind of like, whatever. I- <laughs> well, I would say, too, that on the other hand, there are, like, there are a lot of people who have talked about this. And you can, um, the Waves Breaking podcast, I think a lot of people have, have spoken about it. But, you know, like, for, I think, especially now there's increasing discourse around like, you know, people just doing like poetry to earn money to survive effectively. And, you know, I think that there's also that, that has to be, you know, taken into account to do another math uh, (laughs) pun. (laughs) The math of the self, you know, and (laughs) um, I, I, I see that. I think that people, are very much a lot of people are unemployed and a lot of those unemployed people are artists um but that that's what i'm saying is like i shouldn't have to fucking like hoard my work and play by these silly rules around copyright and not show people my work so that i can set it aside for this other day blah 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 um for someone to you know the way the way that i look at those things like patreon and other modes of supporting artists is like okay look uh, i'm an artist and i'm gonna be making it i'm gonna be making art i'm gonna be writing i I am not gonna tell you when 
that's not me at least for writers and artists like me where uh, the very reason that i am doing that uh, is to generate an income because i can't be held to a deadline because of the nature of my illness i'm like do you want to like sponsor me basically do you want me to keep doing this because one way you can help is buy me breakfast you know um you're not buying rights to my work you're not buying a vip you know whatever you're 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 buying basically uh thank you from me <laughs> so that i can continue to function um and i i think we should be a little more generous about for example, like, I, I cannot fucking believe that publications are now trying to play catch up and are like, if you if you posted this thing on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook, we can't publish it. I think that's fucking absurd. First serial rights is stupid. I don't <laughs> I don't understand the point. Um, I just feel like, no, you're renting the work, I guess. Do you want this artist to live? That That's pretty much what I think about it. <laughs> yeah, what's like weird about it too like i've and we can tell like going back to like maybe the the poet side of this somewhat like what's very weird to me too is that a lot of people I, and i see this especially with instagram poets and i've talked about it in the past with regard to instagram poets but like it, this is a general thing that poets nowadays do where it's like like you're saying you you don't they like a lot of poets you know have that in, internalized you know don't post the first draft on the timeline because you know, then you won't be able to publish in a magazine later. And what that ends up taking the shape, what ends up happening is like poets like taking photos of their work in magazines and sharing them. And it's like, you know, and I saw, I've seen this with Instagram poets where it's like these poets who started on Instagram are more interested in taking pictures of their books and sharing them than doing the Instagram poetry, if that makes sense. And it's like this weird, <laughs> and it's like this weird you know, as you're saying kind of you know way of you know managing your 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 rights in order to you know maximize profit it's really yeah it's yeah um I, it's it's like optics should not be a part of the process and yet it is such a huge part of what creates profit yeah it's you like there's clearly like clearly a big difference between someone sharing a screenshot of a poem and someone sharing a photo of a poem in a magazine to people. Yeah, and yeah. Poets and, and too. Exactly. Like, there's, like, the... It's, like, credibility. Like, like oh, no, no, no. I'm, like, a real one. Like... <laughs> yeah, like, I really just want to start printing poems out and then taking photos of them, but... Yeah. <laughs> like, like, spill some coffee on it. Like... <laughs> there are Instagram poets who do that, and it's hilarious. It's... That's so cute. Um, yeah, okay, I... To... I, I... Oh, sorry. Um, I want to talk about Brendan Joyce actually in relation yeah, to this. Go for it. Um, but I have to feed my dog. She is very upset. <laughs> um, so if, oh, could yeah, you I just know what feed me? Yeah, it's cool. Yeah, she... that's okay. I I can also edit things out if. <laughs> yep. Hello. Hi. All right. I'm back. Woo. Okay. Um. So we were talking about like instagram poets doing that shit um <laughs> this idea of like credibility in the digital sphere um and i really like i've been kind of watching um brendan joyce's book character limit like the the process that he used to publish it and that has been so refreshing for me 
to see an, a fellow artist that is like, I don't give a fuck. Um, and to see that, like, produce a really powerful work, you know, that not only does its con- do its contents um, make me feel seen and comforted and, you know, it, it speaks against capital. It, 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 the, the things that the book itself talks about, uh, the things that he's writing about, it, it gives space to people like me, to people that are sick, unemployed, working class, just unable, you know, and to watch a process that has been so unique happen with such transparency online too um it's been amusing at the very least and really exciting <laughs> yeah and i mean like i really think publishing's kind of like and i mean not publishing but they're clearly not ready they're all very incompetent and bad at their jobs but um <laughs> i think really like, i think especially writers are ready for this kind of thing because you know i saw like someone and i like genuinely congratulations to someone for getting a book published but i saw someone like announced that they they got a they had a book forthcoming with a press and they their book was due in fall 2022 and i was just like what is there <laughs> are, are we sure we're gonna make bitch. it to 2022 like you know what get that money bitch Good for yeah you. like I'm, for real i'm not against it but i'm like publishing is really scheduling things to happen in 2022 like what that is such a i don't know how to feel about that because that kind of foolhardy optimism is so beautiful um but i also am like well actually by 2022 it would be great if publishing just didn't exist yeah for real i mean and honestly the way their publishing's handling the crisis who knows maybe they will all be under by 2022 yeah <laughs> that's wild i mean I, I i think that's been part of like i've had a bit of a standstill um in terms of writing um, for many reasons, but one of them being, like, not a lack of incentive so much as I'm like, okay, my imperative right now is to rest, and I'm not submitting, I'm not looking at, like, future prospects the way I'm kind of expected to be doing while in grad school. And so I think that if I were a typical writer coming into this MFA program, for example, I would probably have had a fucking crisis about it by now and been like, oh my god, am I a real writer? Um, But thankfully, that's not where I'm at, you know? Um, I just... I, I think the best thing we can do in this moment where nothing is guaranteed is, like, divest from any vocational identity. <laughs> yeah, because, I mean... And I think, you know there's there's a real need to i guess just uh, partially like you know take care of yourself but also you know be ready for all this all the fucking changes that seem to uh, be out the at our doorstep yeah um and it's like i don't if things go rapidly south and and publishing doesn't exist anymore and advances fall through in that time like what's that going to look like for most of us, you know? um, Like, I've known um, many people who... uh, Okay, uh, I'm about to get a little identity politics for a second, but I I think I have been, rather than, like, getting into, like, um, let's talk diaspora identity, like, that shit, I'm just... I'm too old, I'm tired, I'm fucking 30 years old, I don't want to do it anymore. But what I am 
doing in terms of like how does identity fit into this because I'm constantly forced to think about it anyway uh my racial identity and my blah 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 because that's what people always ask about you know um I've been really thinking about the function of whiteness and like that positioning of the default and what it does to a person's spirit and I feel like I've observed this phenomenon of white cis male artists are burdened with this notion of I am America's voice and they're not wrong I I am not at all taking responsibility for that shit I don't want to talk about this is a nation of immigrants I don't give a fuck it is very much an American thing the white male voice and that's such a heavy heavy burden and I see a lot of my friends um, in this cohort or otherwise struggle with this thing of if i'm not writing the great american novel what the fuck am i doing am i a writer uh who am i um and it's always with the undercurrent being what if i look in there and there's nothing there you know i feel like more than anyone else more than any demographic white cis men um have this thing uh, very often this burden of like the fear of self-investigation because they are charged with being America and therefore, you know, whatever they are, it's such a huge, huge, powerful thing. This, this like, um, effigy to colonialism. (laughs) And I think that a lot of, especially, um, artists in in this demographic who are sort of conscious of like the, the colonialist history and what it's done it's like constantly feeling pressured to justify the power that they have and trying to both divest from and justify it and that it's just a horrifying back and forth that i constantly see um and i don't know what's going to happen to people with these complexes where they feel worried about who am i underneath all this when all this is gone i do not see 2022 books happening to be honest like like for me um (laughs) um i the 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 hope that i have is that that is not something that's going to come to be um but should that ideal future happen and i'm celebrating what's going to happen to these people i worry about them yeah, I was reminded of that famous quote about Jonathan, the famous tweet about Jonathan Franzen that's like, Jonathan Franzen's wife comes up to him, says, honey, I'm pregnant. Jonathan Franzen puts his, his, his finger on his wife's lips and says, it is not you that is pregnant, but I with the next great American novel. He then goes out oh, to the no. backyard and places a single portobello mushroom on the grill. And f- <laughs> and further, further record, I, I think I have that whole tweet memorized. <laughs> that's a good one i never read it (laughs) i have not known peace since i've read that tweet (laughs) but yeah yeah, i mean it's like to be the colonizer right to have that legacy behind you it's such a grave burden and like the hand wringing alone that i see i'm like damn i don't i i would rather just be this (laughs) that's so scary yeah, and I think, you know, like, we see, like, for instance, you know, we see, I see all kinds of white male poets out there having meltdowns every day about someone criticizing some poem they like. And it's like, it's clear, yeah, like, it's clear they have some kind of 
the psychic burden that they feel is uh, crumbling before their eyes, I think. I, I think that whiteness affords you access to a template that is embraced as not just the default, but what should be the ideal, you know? Um, and I, I don't have that, and this is all anecdotal, but I don't have that, and so it's freeing where I'm like, oh no, I, my body and myself are already aberrant and should not exist according to the demands of the state. And therefore, I don't worry about that, and I don't have anyone to look to for a good job, right? Like, I don't have anywhere to go but within to dictate who I am as a person, as an artist, you know, what I'm producing, etc. Um, and I think the identity crisis is often a... a white american phenomenon like that and i think that's why like the the coming of age narrative is so predominantly white um oh well sorry sorry to interrupt <laughs> for a second but i think something that i messaged you that i wanted to talk about and this might be a good chance to talk about it is like your book is set in the midwest and i feel Ooh. like and i <laughs> and i feel like canonically that is the epicenter of the white male crisis <laughs> Yes, absolutely. Oh, I'm so glad you remembered. Um, because I wouldn't have. <laughs> I'm like my book. I don't know her. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah. The the mid. I feel so many romantic things about the Midwest, and I think it's definitely this thing of like the. I think it's like the first essay in that book. Um, I don't. I don't. I don't remember what it's called. <laughs> but it's like uh, just about like how. That coming-of-age narrative, that tumultuous thing of, like, uh, fucking up and getting back up and all this stuff, like, that, it, it's all, when you, whenever you look for a narrative like that, it, it's, uh, like, fucking, you know, holding Caulfield or whatever. Um, I, a person like me, is not going to find themselves in that. Um, and I think it, in some ways it feels like I am stealing away from the canon i don't want to be a part of that canon it, it, that that book in a lot of ways was me realizing that of i've had so much trouble finding a place for myself and really it turns out i don't need to be there <laughs> um and I, I think it's funny what growth happens outside of the work that's written you know what i mean where there's the book itself, but there's also the book that is being written as that book is being written of realizing that, oh, all these things I wrote back then are already wrong, you know? Um, and, and the Midwest is just, I don't, what is it about corn that is so deeply, deeply American somehow? Yeah. <laughs> um, like, I'm thinking about, like, Monsanto mutant corn and how it's taken an indigenous plant and, like, turned it into a factory-made thing. Um, and, like, how that's basically what um, the coming-of-age narrative is. You know, it's, it's, it's a universal experience of maturation that has been capitalized on and, and Xeroxed over and over and over. Yeah, and I definitely, I definitely want to point out that, like, you know, you, like, for instance, with the letters to the publisher in the book, like, you're very consciously, I think, avoiding 
any of those kind of great American novel, <laughs> like sort of stereotypes and, you know, trying to do something different too. Like not just, yeah, criticizing that. Yeah, I mean, I don't know about trying to do something different so much as, like, like, I've had several people bring up the letters to the publisher, and it's always something that I have a hard time with, because it's not my favorite thing about the book whatsoever, but it is something that people look to as, like, a signifier of, like, innovation or an attempt at it, right, of, like, metacognition, and I look at it as desperation, that's what that was, is, like, I mean, the way I wrote that book was, I, it was a book that I had been writing for years and years and years, from when I was very young. Um, some of those pieces started when I was, like, 19. Um, but in the process of, like, becoming embroiled in this publishing process, like, I ended up sitting down very unhealthy, uninsured, no therapist, no doctor, like, just having to write and that's all I had. And when you're a deeply ill person and you're dealing with like PTSD and writing about those things that gave you PTSD, you know, it, it, your communications with people are, are not always going to be healthy. And I see those letters as like they were real letters. Um, but was that were the actual conversations intimate? Was I actually on real friendly terms with my publisher? No. And I wouldn't say that that means it's a performance, but I would say it was, I see those things as, like, me typing something out and just throwing it out the window with some ridiculous, oblivious hope, thinking maybe something will come back to me. And their inclusion in the book, I, I don't know how I feel, um, especially because I don't even know how I feel about my book at this point. I'm just, I'm just like, please buy it. I love <laughs> to have food in my tummy. <laughs> yeah, well, what you're, what you're just saying now, and how I read the letters to, uh, in the book is, well, not they're not solely about this, but one aspect of the of it to me is like they're about the violence of publishing itself. You know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um. And like. I think there is a tendency for us to, like, talk about publishing and, and poetry and writing whatever as though it's, like, a separate thing from the greater worker struggle, but it's not. And the way that I interpret that is, like, the, the expectation of professionalism, or one of the biggest beefs I've had with this guy um, who I'm writing these letters to is, like, <laughs> I'm not trying to put him on blast, but I also don't care. But, like, this is a guy where we had many disagreements on a personal level and ultimately had a, a very big falling out due to me um, breaching our agreement, right, by leaking PDFs of my book. Um, very different politics and outlooks. Um, and ultimately, it's like, this is a liberal kind of guy that I wouldn't ever talk to. And therefore... There was this vibe of, like, you know, like, we're all family here. Like, there's that kind of thing that happens uh -oh. in publishing, too. Um, <laughs> you know, where, like, there was this feeling of, like, oh, okay, we're supposed to be friends. But I'm like, I don't fucking know you. You're not my friend. I'm not your friend. I don't want to be your friend. I don't know you. Um, I was the first person he published that was not from Portland, that was not a personal friend before 
um, being scouted. Uh, he started the press to publish himself, and the several books he put out before me were all friends of his. They were all white people, and they were all cis people. Um, so I was check ticking off a lot of those fun liberal boxes for him, you know, and for whatever reason, like, I could tell he, like, deeply, deeply wanted to be my friend and was uh, talking with me as though this were the case. Um, and it was his idea, for example, that, like, you know, oh, if you feel stuck at night and, like, you know, you just feel like bl blasting off an email, please feel free. But the majority of correspondences were not correspondences at all. Uh, there's a reason that there is no, the publisher said this back in the book. Um, there was a lot of, like, me listening to him bitch about his girlfriend. You know, there was a lot of, like, like, I there were many red flags, like, when we first um, embarked on this journey. He had called me up after getting my information from a friend of mine who, who had some of my work up on their website, on his website, and this guy was on the phone with me, and I was, like, curious. I'm like, why do you want to write, you know, to put out a book with me? And he pointed out my least favorite essay in that book, um... There's this essay called, I think it's like, Oh Me, Oh My, Chicken Soup, blah, 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 whatever. Um, it's about, like, food culture, like, diasporic food culture. I hate that essay so much. It, it feels like a cheap op-ed that I don't, <laughs> I wouldn't stand by today, you know, where it's all like, Oh, when white men with tattoos make my grandmother's soup, like, like there's that that's a valid thing to feel frustrated about. But would I stand by that essay today? Absolutely not. I would not include it in the book at all. Um, tonally, there's things that just it doesn't make sense. Um, but he pointed this out as the major thing that got him interested in working with me. And he said, and this was our first phone conversation when he was pitching the book deal to me. He said, uh. You know, my my girlfriend is Japanese, and reading that essay, like, it made me feel kind of, like, called out, and uh, I felt like, you know, it helped me understand why she felt the way that she did about some things that I was saying and doing. And I'm like, okay, huh, wow. Uh, <laughs> like, I, I'm, like, I'm, like, frozen in that moment where I'm like, do I bring the geopolitical discussion about, like, Japanese colonialism into this, or do I just go, yay, you want to put out my book and sign the fucking thing? And I signed the fucking thing, because, again, sick person. I had no advocate. I had nobody sitting there with me and saying, hey, this guy is not good news. So, ultimately, those letters, it... it <laughs> It represents this thing of, again, please don't unionize. We're all family here. We're friends, you know? And when I did have that disagreement where ultimately I felt that I don't give a fuck how publishing is supposed to work. I don't, I don't give a fuck that technically I'm in breach of our agreement. I wrote these words. It costs you nothing to distribute the PDF for free. It costs you nothing to produce the PDF. So therefore, if somebody comes to me and says, I want to read your book, and I'm so sick, and I'm so scared, I wish I could read it, but I don't have the money, it is my right, not in the legal sense, I guess, to say, yeah, whatever. Uh, and the fact that this is a person who has a problem with that um, tells me a lot. Um, it tells me a lot, for example, that 
when he decided to penalize me for that and wrote a very long um condescending email that started a big thing with us uh in response to my misdeeds i was in the midst of another suicidal crisis and does he have anything to say to that um when i say you know what man i'm i'm like struggling real hard i can't do this right now no there are there is no compassion there there's no regard for me as a human being it is the product and i think we all forget very easily that even in this realm of like liberal arts distribution that stuff is happening we're not people we're not people to the 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 publishing houses you know <laughs> well, i guess like um something 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 else about your book that i wanted to talk like talk about and i think maybe it contrast to what we just talked about the the book ends with um like that little um the little i guess like prose poem type thing where it starts with you should have at least six paintings and seven films that changed you 13 poems that saved your life um but it ends with um you should listen to people and i mean i guess like that that does feel like something like, if you're going to write a book that does feel like one way to end it i guess if that makes sense yeah i mean I was actually asked um, when a friend of mine, uh, Kendra Allen, um, she has a fantastic book also. Um, it's called When You Learn the Alphabet. Um, very good. Uh, but she she had me do a Q&A with her students and someone asked me about that. They were, they were like, you know, like the page before it, you ended like so pretty and like you wrote this really beautiful passage about love and then you put up like this weird facebook posts like why did you do that <laughs> and i was like thank you for that um <laughs> like really sweet of you to um put me on blast like that but ultimately it's like my answer then and my answer now is i i'm a person not an artist i'm a person not a product uh whatever it is that these people are reading there's a very deeply flawed dumb bitch that wrote it um <laughs> And you should listen to people beyond just the curated work of art that they put forth, right? <laughs> yeah, and I mean, that kind of interaction is, I guess, partially, too, what we're, what we're talking about. And the way, I guess, you know, the workshop works, too, which, uh, you know, <laughs> has its problems. Oh, bitch, I hate workshops. <laughs> I'm so fucking anti-workshops. I shouldn't talk shit because I've never been in one, but, I, yeah. <laughs> I think you're allowed. I mean, I've I've been in workshops for God, I don't what is it like it feels like seven years straight. I don't fucking know. <laughs> but I, I think that they're designed in such a way that it encroaches on like again, you're seeing that thing of we're not people in this space. Like we're we're expected to abide by a certain professional code of conduct, and I think as soon as you have a professional standard for something, you are curtailing our ability to see each other as people beyond being workers of the same field. I mean, the the best um, workshops, quote end quote, um, that I've attended, um, the most important conversations that I've had that have changed my work for the better it's it's all been about intimacy it's all been about looking each other in the eye and talking about well what is it that you want to do what is it, who who do you want to be 
there's no room for that in a workshop. People just sit there with their thumbs up their ass and they say shit like, wow, the images are so powerful. Like, fuck you. Yeah, and I mean, something else you talk about a lot is like the professionalism and all that. And like, in a, it seems like like you like you see you see workshops as a space where like the professionalism of the poetry field is kind of i guess indoctrinated into people i see workshops as a lazy shortcut to having a productive conversation i think that innovation happens very much through intimacy because how useful can your feedback be if you don't attempt to attempt, uh, understand the person right um and when you have this like code of conduct as opposed to um reasonable expectations of others like as people you're you're already kind of tanking the conversation and um giving it the expectation of being tepid um i think that rather than having workshops where we like take turns and blah 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 and try to you know oh let's do a compliment sandwich or whatever it, it should be about well, let, let's talk about what did you want to do? What do you care about? What are the things that you want to say? Um, and very often what I find is when I ask people these questions during a workshop, they don't have an answer. And I think that in itself is the problem. They're not being asked on the reg, what do you want to say? So they don't think about it. And it takes them much longer it, it, to produce a work that really reflects their values, if ever. Yeah, well, I mean, I, from my perspective, it seems like, you know, the workshops and the the way the workshops operate like in the mfa system is antithetical to that mm -hmm. yeah um and you know like when i talk about professionalism it's it's ultimately always centered around <sighs> i think it is wild that for example you can have a workshop where and i've i've had this happen multiple times where someone turns in uh work that clearly indicates oh this person is struggling and we're not supposed to act, like talk to them and and i think that there's this thing happening where we want to avoid the discomfort of being wrong we want to avoid the discomfort of accidentally crossing a person's boundary so we just act like oh well the speaker or the narrator or you know even when it's nonfiction, the narrator i think that's really toxic I think when you can tell that someone is producing work that reflects the fact that they are struggling, it's your it's your ethical duty to reach out to that person, even if you're wrong and off base, and not not put them on fucking blast, but maybe check in with them <laughs> after and be like, hey, you know, like I I see a lot of in this work that I understand is this this and this, and I'm just wondering like if you wanted to talk about how it's being channeled where it's coming from just like holding space for that person at the very least being like hey i see you and and i'm not judging you like it, it really reflects the kind of sterile environment that is okay with putting forth the face of you know like these academics the administrators the department has they they talk like we're oh well this is an art program and therefore we're all eccentric and mentally ill and different and whatever and everybody understands but you have a person saying i had a crisis and they resort immediately to those um hallmarks of professionalism 
not being able to connect connect with you as a human being and treating you as like an obstacle um i i just like for example if someone is saying hey um i am very very sick and i can't do this work but um hi like grades are fake and you have the nerve during a pandemic to write back some shit like okay well you still didn't meet the standards, so I may still have to give you a failing grade. How the fuck can, do you sleep at night? What kind of person does that? How How is anybody penalizing anyone right now for their class performance? What the fuck is that? <laughs> yeah, for sure. And what you're saying reminded me of like one of the uh, conversations I had on here with Mark Nowak, who like was doing writing workshops like... Uh, like in in collaboration with various unions and like when someone in the workshop would talk about like you know clear like workplace violations in their poetry like he he said like you know yeah we'd talk about like we'd refer to them to like their union and like how they can get help redressing those issues through their union and it's like that whole model of trying to do that within the mfa programs doesn't seem to exist that you know there when someone has a problem in their poetry like a real world problem like it's just like you're like you're saying it's like oh that's the speakers having this problem not this person in front of me right it, the speaker on one hand can be a powerful tool for um disavowing responsibility for dangerous thought on the part of the author right or for example i can say i want a suicide bomb <laughs> a federal building but i'm like i didn't say it it was a poem um but on the other hand and i think this is not how it should be is it it allows a reader and and i don't think readers have a responsibility to writers what i'm saying is that in the context of a workshop where you are connecting and that's your job to be connecting with that person and understanding their work one of the ways that you understand a work is by understanding the person and it gives us such an easy out to go, well, the speaker is upset. The speaker is being traumatized. The speaker is going through these things without ever wondering about the person. You don't have to. It's just an unpleasantness that you can very easily, you know, kind of go, ugh. And on the other hand, I also see people that, that it's a fine line because I do see people that cross that line and reach out beyond that but what they do is very often because they're not they're they're not familiar with any kind of protocol where you can address a person through their poetry and say i'm concerned all they do is say i'm concerned but do these six-figure making faculty members ever reach out with actual help absolutely not they just want you to know they're a good person yeah. Um, well, is there anything else you you want to talk about on the podcast? Um, I don't know. <laughs> Am I doing a good job? I guess. <laughs> yeah. No, it's good. You know, you're good. <laughs> I just like to make sure I ask people that so they they have a chance if uh if I've been steering the conversation too much or whatever. I can't think of anything. Um, and and I I've told you it's like my brain is just like on fire right now. No, it's good. I'm sure. I'm sure I can edit this into an episode. That was really good. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, let me stop the recording.